Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mic check, mic check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right up. That. Biblical, biblical theology, theology study, the person of God, attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone that gives some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough, uh-huh. just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication, a work of art, from Genesis to Revelation, from God's creation, to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses Who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes So clever we behold his endeavors unfold The greatest story ever told The Christian life is a difficult odyssey The faithful are a statistical anomaly The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that biblical theology Lord God, deliver us from apostasy The human heart is given to idolatry The situation is critical, we gotta See the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction yeah. and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our reflections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our death, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. Hi, welcome to another edition of Theology Matters. I'm your host, Devin Palou, and my lovely bride is uh, actually going out to dinner with a friend tonight, so she will not be joining us. 
but we have a very, very exciting show, uh, one I've been looking forward to doing a long time. Uh, we are going to look at some of the in-depth thought of uh, one of the greatest uh, theologians and philosophers in the church, and that would be St. Thomas Aquinas. I was introduced to uh, to Thomas Aquinas through uh, Dr. Geisler and through a lot of his uh, writings and and lectures, and uh, has definitely had a profound effect on my life. And uh, have a guy that I think is uh, is just brilliant. First, uh, first kind of saw him. It was through uh, through some of his work, uh, some of his writings on the blog on a blog that he runs, and I uh, was just blown away. So he's going to walk through some of the uh, five ways to prove the existence of God um, using uh, the base the base of the thought of Thomas Aquinas. So we're looking forward to that. Um, those who have not liked us on uh, our Facebook page yet, if you go to facebook.com slash theologymatters with the Palouse, Facebook.com slash Theology Matters with the Palouse. I would highly suggest you do that. Uh, you'll find a lot of our old shows there. We've had some really good guests on. We uh, we did a whole show with Paul Copan for an hour and a half of uh, answering uh, objections from atheists. We've done several debates. We did a uh, one of our most popular shows was a debate we did with a Protestant, uh, Nathaniel Taylor, and a uh, Catholic, Devin Rose, on the on the topic of sola scriptura. And we also had the president of the Atheist Experience on Matt Dillahunty, uh, and he, he debated uh, our good friend John Ferrer on the existence of God. And uh, I'm in talks right now with uh, Mr. Dillahunty and trying to get him back on to do another debate in July uh, with another friend of mine. Uh, also, June 27th, we are going to be doing a debate uh, with my friend uh, Nathan Taylor. He is the one who uh, I was I was just saying um, debated in the Protestant versus Catholic debate. Uh, this one we're going to do um, Calvinism versus Arminianism, and this is going to be a, a very good discussion. Uh, the gentleman he's going to be debating, um, Jordan Fischel, uh, is uh, is a very very smart young man. Um, he's going to be defending the Arminian view, but also the Molinist position. So that is going to be a that is going to be a real fun, lively debate. So we got a lot of a lot of good stuff uh, in store for you guys. We also got a couple shows. We're going to be dealing with uh, how to respond to Mormons as well as Jehovah's Witnesses. We've done a few shows in the past. Uh, in fact, we even did a debate. Uh, Mormon and uh, another friend of mine uh, on the nature of God and the differences between the Mormon view and the uh, Orthodox Christian view. So we've got a lot of stuff coming up for you guys, and uh, you know, try and try and give you guys uh, some of the top thinkers. And uh, you know, the, the goal the goal of the show is to uh, you know, give people uh, an opportunity to hear some of the best thinkers really today uh, and see that Christianity really does um, have good reasons to believe that it's true. You know, we live in a culture, we live in a society uh, now where uh, Christianity is under attack. 
and especially in America, you have this this culture of scientism as to where if it can't be you know proven, seen, demonstrated, uh, then it then it must not be real. And you have uh, a lot of the atheists like Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, who's passed away now, uh, Sam Harris, and others, who have really just pranked up the heat uh, on this discussion. And so that's why um, we do do a lot of shows focusing on. Uh, defending Christian the Christian worldview from uh, naturalism, and that's part of the reason why we wanted to do uh, the show today. So, um, without further ado, I am going to bring uh, my good friend Doug on, and uh, like I say, he is an absolute brilliant guy. He's uh, he's got his uh, a blog that he runs. I'll have him. Have him tell more, tell us more, a little bit about that. But uh, he's done several writings. Yeah, I'm trying to pull up his information here. Um, yeah, let's see. He uh, is a graduate of the University of North Texas. He has a BA in philosophy and uh, the University of Dallas uh, Master's in Theological Studies. And uh, we're going to examine. Um, the argument from motion, argument from efficient cause, argument from possibility and necessity, uh, argument from gradation of being, and argument from design. And I think we're going to spend more time in others. Um, I don't know if we're going to spend the same time in, in each argument, but we're going to definitely spend some time looking at these. So, Doug, are you there? Yes, sir, I am. Good, good to have you with us. Uh, it's uh, it's great to be on, and uh, I just wanted to mention first of all, um, I was liking that Christian rap uh, that you were playing at the very beginning. There, uh, you sure you wouldn't want to just go ahead and listen to two hours of his music instead of listening to me talk? <laughs> yeah, man, that's uh, that shy land. Well, we get a lot of people okay. that actually ask about uh, ask about the opening song. Yeah, you can get shy land. It's S H uh, A I. L I N N E. He's got several uh albums out for those who are who are interested. So you can find his a lot of his stuff on uh on YouTube. Okay, okay. You, well that's you, great you to know. Yeah, you you but do then, music uh, and stuff. But, yeah. Yeah. Um but yeah, in any case, uh I'm <clears throat> it's a pleasure to be on with you. Um I know we have a lot of ground to cover. Um I guess, um, if you wouldn't mind, uh, we could start off with uh, Thomas's view of uh, the relationship between faith and reason. Sure. I think that's an okay. important place to start because I think, uh, man, I think today this is just such an area of confusion where the atheists think, you know, the Christians just believe everything by blind faith. And, you know, mm-hmm. I'll be honest, too, with you, Doug, most of the people I end up talking with, you know, the Christians, they think the same thing. They don't they don't they do. think Christianity is, is rational and I I see them get angry if you try and give good reasons as though, you know, somehow giving, you know, reasons for the existence of God is taking away from faith or something. So that that's a good area to start. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, basically the, the question, you know, it isn't belief in God simply uh, a matter of faith. Um, wouldn't the introduction of reasons to believe in God defeat the purpose of faith? Um, 
Well, I certainly don't think that's the biblical view. Um, take Psalm 19.1, for instance. Uh, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament proclaims the works of his hands. Um, even more explicit is Romans 1.19-20, where the Apostle Paul states, For what can be known about God is evident to humanity, because God made it evident to them ever since the creation of the world. His invisible attributes of eternal power and divinity have been able to be understood and perceived in what he has made. So God's existence is, is apparent to everybody. Um, it's not that uh, we want to accuse atheists of being liars or anything like that. Um, I, I think it's possible to unintentionally suppress um, not one's knowledge of God. Um, but, but in any case, uh, God's existence is, is known to everybody uh, through what has been made, and that's, a, that's the biblical view there. Um, so faith, then, I think, can be understood as uh, trust in God to keep his promises. Um, you might take a look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11. Uh, By faith, Abraham received power to generate, even though he was past the normal age, and Sarah herself was sterile. For he thought that the one who made the promise was trustworthy. So it's a matter of, uh, of making, keeping the promises that I think that uh, faith enters into all of this. Uh, faith can be viewed as above reason in some senses, but never contrary to reason. Um, explain so that. Explain, analogy, explain that a little bit. Yeah. 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 yeah exactly. So I mean, understand and explain that a little bit because I, I know that. Sometimes that's that's a sticking point for people. Yeah, it, it certainly can be. Um, one analogy might help. Um, let's say um, a man can know that his wife exists, but he still has to have faith that she loves him and will keep her vows. Um, now, he has no proof that he's able that that she's going to be able to be faithful to him and keep her vows. But it's not contrary to reason. It, it, it's not as if he's irrational in his belief that she will keep her vows. So um, I, I don't see any conflict between providing arguments for God's existence with the biblical view of faith. Uh, uh, now, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I run into uh, I run into sometimes some Christians who um, who think that it is actually a sin. To offer arguments for the existence really? of God uh, to non-believers. Normally, these are some of your real hyper, you know, presuppositionalists um, who mm -hmm. really think, yeah, if you give arguments for the existence of God, it is a sin. You are insulting God uh, because you're somehow making the people uh, the judge and uh, and the jury. And uh, yeah. You know, yeah, well, I, I would simply point, I would simply point to the passages that I've already listed, as well as, um, you know, Paul's debate uh, with uh, with the Greeks and the Book of Acts, where he uses right. um, Greek um, philosophical arguments in support of his position, and points out that nothing that he said is contrary to Christian belief. Um, so I, I think that uh, for anyone to say that it's a sin to uh, offer arguments uh, for God's existence um, um, is just uh, simply mistaken. 
<laughs> right. I would I would agree with you. Hey, let me get a little more clarification on, on one of the points that we raised. Uh, in Romans one eighteen through, what, 25, uh, about the existence of God made known, um, I think sometimes what happens, um, because I've actually seen some of the presuppositionalists use this and say we don't need to offer arguments for the existence of God because they already know God exists. Um, with with that particular scripture, though, it's talking about general theism, right? I mean, it's not talking about the doc that everybody is born knowing the doctrine mm-hmm. of the Trinity intuitive. Is that is that correct? Right, right. Yeah, this this is this would be a general theism. I, I don't see how a our presuppositionalist could could possibly reason that everybody knows that the Christian worldview is the correct one, especially, I mean, just commonsensically, um, there are people who have never heard of Jesus. Um, and, right. and so, you know, I, I'm not sure where um, um, these presuppositionalists would attempt to uh, interpret it in that way. I think I think that's just a, a twisting of the interpretation of Paul's words there. Right. I'm, I've been going through uh, Doug Grotice's book. I actually wrote a, a review for that in the journal at Southern Evangelical Seminary, his book, um, mm-hmm. Christian Apologetics. Have you have you got to see that book yet? Uh, who is it by? Uh, Douglas Grotice, his book, Christian Apologetics. You know, I, I, I haven't read that one. Um uh, no, I, I have read a book by um, a presuppositionalist named uh, uh, John Frame, um, Apologetics to the Glory of God, in which he actually attempts to combine presuppositionalism with uh, the traditional arguments of natural theology. So that I think that would be worth a read. But um, but I mean, yeah. feel free to, to uh, tell us some more about uh, this book that uh, Christian Apologetics. Yeah, I was just going to say, uh, Grotice is not, he's not a uh, he's not a presuppositionalist. He's a he's a classical guy, and um, uh, his mm-hmm. book. I, I was the reason I was bringing that up. He's got a whole section on the on natural theology and uh, the verses we just went over in Romans one eighteen, and he demonstrates philosophically that that you can actually get to monotheism uh, from natural mm-hmm. uh, revelation. Could you can you talk about that a little bit? Well, yeah, I was planning on it, on it a little bit later. Um, oh, okay. Whenever that's, that's we, no well, that's, yeah, I mean, I can skip ahead if you'd like. Um, but basically, no, it all okay. comes down to to an argument found in um, uh, Thomas Aquinas' small track De Ente et Ascentia, and um, we're gonna. Um, my plan was basically to look at a, an ancient argument from a Greek philosopher named Parmenides, and then see how see how uh, philosophers answered that, and eventually how we're led to monotheism. Great. Well, yeah, just keep keep on your schedule. I don't mean to <laughs> make you go fast. Oh, wait. You're the host, so uh, uh, it's totally no, up to you. Continue what you were saying, man. I didn't mean to cut okay. you off there. Oh, no, no worries. No worries at all. Um, I, I did want to say a little bit about uh, Thomas Aquinas himself. Um, just for anybody who's unfamiliar with him, uh, he was a 13th century Catholic philosopher and theologian in the Dominican order. Uh, he was born in Italy near the town of Aquino in 1225 and died in 1274. So, so, so for 
anybody wondering um, about Aquinas, um, that's not actually his last name. Um, it's uh, his, his name is simply Thomas, but it's kind of like how Leonardo uh, uh, da Vinci. We often refer to him as da Vinci, but that's just because he was from Vinci. That you know his name, his last name wasn't da Vinci, so it's a similar thing with Thomas Aquinas. Um, but in any case, uh, Thomas taught at the University of Paris uh, sometime after his mentor uh, Albert the Great famously predicted that Thomas's so-called bellowing would be would someday be heard throughout the world, and uh, he certainly has been heard. Um, but what's interesting to me about Thomas is that his teachings were highly controversial during his own lifetime. Uh, Christian philosophers had, for the most part, appealed to the philosophy of Plato. However, the philosophy of Aristotle, which had been preserved by some of the Islamic philosophical traditions, was finally starting to make its way into Christian thought. So a lot of Thomas's peers feared that Aristotelianism was too materialistic, yet uh, Thomas was able, and I think quite successfully, to combine the philosophy of Aristotle with Christian theology. Now, that was an absolute mouthful, I know. Um, <laughs> No, that's that's good. We definitely needed to uh to get a little background on on uh on who Thomas Aquinas is. So you say that um I guess tell us a little bit about the about the five ways. Okay. Well sure. Um yeah, the five ways of Thomas Aquinas really aren't original to Thomas himself. Um but they were perhaps made most famous by him. Um, in fact, most of the issues Thomas addresses were being debated by the ancient Greek philosophers, such as Plato and Aristotle. Um, when we talk about the metaphysics of someone like Thomas, uh, we can actually look back to what's known as the problem of the one and the many. Um, so just briefly, before getting into what Thomas has to say about God, um, it's helpful to analyze an argument by 6th century B.C. Greek philosopher that I, that I mentioned uh, just a little earlier, Parmenides. Um, Parmenides, um, according to him, all is one. Uh, distinctions between things are illusory, and all change is illusory. Um, now, that may sound crazy to us, but this was a philosopher who had a substantial influence among philosophers, even if his conclusion is rejected by most. Um, so, um, in, in the context, in, in that context, I want to go ahead and provide Thomas's response. Um, but, but here's what Parmenides argues. Uh, number one, if there were more than one entity, then they would have to be distinct. Two, in order to be distinct, two entities would have to differ by being or non-being. Three, being is what makes things identical. Four, to be distinct by non-being is to not differ at all. From which it follows, therefore, five, all is one, being. Yeah. That's quite an argument it's, there. <laughs> it is, yeah. I mean, you, you, it sounds silly until you see the argument, and then it's kind of like, mm -hmm. oh, man, <laughs> how do you respond to that? It, it is. It is a challenge, um, yeah, and uh, yeah. When you just lay out the, his, his conclusion, yeah, it does sound silly, but um, the argument itself, seems, at least at first glance, seems to make a little bit of sense. 
And what what I'm going to suggest is that um, it does make sense to a certain extent, but that Parmenides has made a crucial mistake, which has later been uh, corrected by by some later philosophers. Um, So while Aristotle has a reasonable answer to this, uh, we're going to go ahead and focus on what Thomas Aquinas says. So to answer this argument then, and before one can truly grasp any of the five ways, it's important to have a solid understanding of Thomas's basic metaphysical proof found in a small tract known as De Essentia, or On Being and Essence. Now, it's here that Thomas distinguishes between essence, which is the thing's nature, and being, which is, a, which is the thing's existence or actuality. So, for example, we can describe the essence of a unicorn roughly as a magical horse with a horn. However, this description doesn't commit us to the belief that there is such an entity as a unicorn. What would make a unicorn real would be being. So, according to Thomas Aquinas, it follows that being and essence are distinct. So, Parmenides' mistake, then, was not that being is one, but that things can only differ by being. Thomas is saying mm. things differ by essence as opposed to being. Um, right. Right. So this makes – I think this makes perfect sense out of the problem of the one and the many. Um, we have a natural inclination to think that everything is connected in some way, which is, according to Thomas, through being, but things are also distinct, which is found in things' essence or nature – um, all of us are connected because we're able to causally interact with one another. Um, so if there were really more than one type of being, I, I think that there would be a real difficulty in, in explaining how we can have any connection whatsoever. Um, if our being is distinct from one another and our essence is distinct from one another, then where's the... Uh, where do we find any unity to causally interact with one another? Um, So with this in mind, uh, Thomas argues that given the existence of anything at all, it follows that being exists. And I I say being exists as opposed to existence exists because I just want to avoid the uh, linguistic redundancy there. Um, So so without being, uh, there could only be hypothetical essences but none of these would ever be instantiated. So what else can we say about being? Well, it must exist at all times and all places, and is therefore eternal and omnipresent. It must also be one. If there were more than one being, there would be distinctions between them. But to be distinct from being is to be non-being, in which the latter doesn't exist anyway. And uh, lastly, being must be very powerful, if not omnipotent, in order to sustain the existence of all existence of all existent essences. So these are just a few of the attributes that Thomas deduces about being. Uh, what we have then is an argument for the existence of an eternal, omnipresent, unique, and very powerful entity. Um, so if this is not God, then it's certainly very much like God. Um, would you say we're on the same page so far? Any need yeah, clarification? Yeah, definitely. Definitely got all the signposts of God for sure. So that's okay. uh, that's good. Maybe maybe we could talk just just real quick about that. Is 
that's one that is one of the questions I I have heard actually a lot is uh, why why does there have to be only one God? Why not uh, mm-hmm. many God? Why not many? many? Yeah, yeah, and, and uh, exactly, and and this this argument answers that question because uh, God is, in the words of Thomas, uh, God alone can be being itself subsisting, and so uh, you know there are various other essences. But um, there's only one being itself, and uh, we share in that being. Um, but we're not uh, we're not being. We are uh, sort of a composite of being and essence. So um, I, I usually I, I like I like to use this basic metaphysical proof kind of just uh, as a way to interpret each of the five ways. Um, so each of the five ways really arrive at the same conclusions, but they do so from different aspects of reality. Um, the first way, also known as the argument from motion, includes that an unmoved mover exists, which is the cause of all things in motion. Uh, now, it's important to understand that when Thomas and Aristotle talk about motion, they don't simply mean movement from one location to another. Uh, that's hey, hey, kind of like our modern hey, 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 Doug, I'll say it. real quick. Um, your phone's kind of breaking up just a little bit, kind of having a little, a little bit. Uh, hard time hearing you. I don't know if it's just on my end or not, but I just uh, – just because I know where else is going to record the podcast. So. Oh, okay. Absolutely. Well, I have no problem repeating some of that. Um, anyway, we're, we're yeah, talking about – can you hear me now, okay? Yeah, yeah. You were saying uh, each of the five ways uh, arrive at the same conclusion. Right, and, and, and they do from from different aspects of reality. Um, and so we're currently talking about the first way, which is also known as the argument from motion. And it concludes that an unmoved mover exists, which is the cause of all things in motion. Um, but it's it's really crucial to understand that when Thomas and Aristotle talk about motion, they don't simply mean movement from one location to another. Um, that's kind of like our modern understanding of the word motion. Um, right. Rather, their their use of the term refers to any change whatsoever. So one might prefer to call the entity in question the unchanged changer, but to be honest, I find that term less aesthetically pleasing. Um, it just doesn't <laughs> roll off the tongue as well. Um, so I prefer to use the more traditional name. Um, well, let, me, so, let me ask you this. When... Uh, real, real quick, just for clarification, when I was saying um, uh, talking about anything that refers to change whatsoever, what what exactly does it mean by change? Like, well, basically, change, change, change and, and, and actually, in, in fact, an example that I'm going to give um, in support of premise one, which is that evident to the senses is motion or change, if you prefer, um, would be an acorn. Um, for example, um, which is merely an acorn in actuality, but it also exhibits potentiality um, to be something else, like an oak tree. And uh, so this is what Aristotle corrected Parmenides on. Things can change because they exemplify both potentiality, which is what something could be, and actuality, which is what something really is. Um, So, uh, I mean, does that answer your question? Yes, uh-huh. absolutely does. Okay, okay, great, great. Um, so, I mean, the first way then can be summarized as follows. Um, 
as I mentioned, number one, uh, evidence of the senses is motion. Uh, number two, everything in motion has its motion sustained by another. Three, either an unmoved mover exists or else there is an infinite regress of sustaining movers. And that follows from one and two. Um, wow. Or there cannot there cannot be an infinite regress of sustaining movers, and that's the, that, that I think is the key premise of the argument um, from which it follows. Therefore, an unmoved mover exists, and that follows from three and four. Um, so, uh, I mean, any questions about uh, the uh, validity of the argument or, or anything like that? No, it looks looks really really amazing. <laughs> okay. Okay, well, I mean, it's, it's a logically valid argument, and so what we have to analyze then is um, are the premises of the argument true or are they at least um, more likely true than their negations? And so um, just, you know, like I said before in defense of one, we do observe that things really do change, like the acorn um, changing into an oak tree. Um, Hi. So that brings us to premise two, that everything in motion has its motion sustained by another. Um, so let's stick with the acorn analogy. Um, in order for an acorn to change into an oak tree, it requires sustaining causes of its change, such as water, soil, and sunlight. Um, now, if at any point these sustaining causes are removed, then the acorn will cease to become an oak tree. Right. That's good. I like that. And um, now, some some do suggest that that Newton's law of inertia undermines the premise of the argument. Um, the way that I would respond to that is that uh, Newton's just just to familiarize everybody with with that law. Um, Newton's law of inertia states that a thing will remain at rest or in motion unless some external cause changes it. So um, the objector to premise two might give the example of something moving in a straight line. Um, allegedly, inertia would suggest that nothing is required to sustain this thing's motion. Um, but there are several points to consider before abandoning the argument for motion, um, and premise two in particular. Um, first, the law of inertia applies only to movement from one location to another. Uh, the argument for motion is really best understood as the argument for change. Uh, so even if there were any exceptions to premise two, we could easily accommodate the skeptic's objection by limiting the requirement for sustaining causes of motion. Um, you know, things like, well, you know, things that aren't moving in a straight line. Um, an acorn, after all, is certainly not moving in a straight line. Um, and secondly, inertia would only apply... Uh, to objects that move in a straight line in an absolutely empty vacuum. Um, imagine no friction or gravity that would result in a change in the object's motion. Um, now, the problem is that Newton's law of inertia is really more of an idealization than an actuality. As uh, Christopher Ray points out in his book, um, Time, Space, and Philosophy, um, it is a mistake to think of any physical vacuum as some absolutely empty void. Um, now, besides all that, um, Einsteinian physics has superseded Newtonian physics, so the objection really has no merit on several grounds. Right. So, um, 
if there if, if there are no um, further questions about uh, premise two, um, we could look at uh, premise three. Uh, premise three, is, which is really implied by one and two. Um, if there is no unmoved mover and everything in motion has its motion sustained by another, then it follows that there is an infinite regress of sustaining movers. And so I, I think that the key premise of the argument is therefore premise four, that there cannot be an infinite regress of sustaining movers. Um, right. Now, and, and this is this is where the – correct me if I'm wrong, but this is kind of when we're, we're – um, are talking with like the Kalam cosmological argument um, mm-hmm. that uh, a lot of times the atheists are going to say there's a like an infinite could be an infinite regressive causes is that right? Sometimes yeah, but the beauty of this argument is that it's perfectly open to um, a universe that's infinite in the past or finite in the past. Since we're not talking about originating causes of motion. We're rather talking about sustaining causes of motion. Um, that, so that this is, is this a is crucial, is, crucial point, isn't it? That's, I mean, that's a crucial absolutely. difference in the it, it absolutely is crucial to understand the difference between the two, and um, and so that's why it, it, it's really important to um, to reiterate that we're we're denying not necessarily the existence of an infinite regress of originating movers, although that has its problems of its own, but rather we are rejecting the possibility of an infinite regress of sustaining movers. Um, right. So why might why might this be the case? Um, one reason by, given by Thomas in the Summa Contra Gentiles is that it's impossible to form an actual infinite by successive addition whenever one begins counting. Um, the beauty of the argument, as I mentioned before, is that it leaves the finitude versus infinitude of the universe's past as an open question. But regardless, um, um, I mean, it is one thing to ask why something begins to be in motion, quite another to ask why it continues to be in motion. Um, but in, in any case, even whether it's finite or infinite, um, the universe is still composed of finite intervals of time. Um, now, at each finite interval, the, the regress of sustaining movers begins anew. Um, remember, if the sustaining cause of a thing's motion is removed, then that thing will cease to be in motion. So think of it this way. Um, it's impossible to count to infinity when whenever, whenever, one, whenever one begins counting. Um, and that's because no matter how many numbers you count, there will always and indefinitely be another number to count before arriving at infinity. So from this, it follows that the regress of sustaining movers must be finite. Um, and given that the regress of sustaining movers is finite, it follows from three and four that an unmoved mover exists in confirmation of five. So what would you say to uh, someone who says uh, an actual infinite can be formed by successive addition? Like on a number line, for example, between one and two, there are infinitely many fractions, one-half, one-quarter, mm-hmm. one-eighth, and, and so on to infinity. Okay, well, I'd, I'd make two points to that. Um, first, um, it, it's kind of a fishy objection, and, and the reason why is because whenever you add up all of these fractions, the sum is a finite number, uh, namely one, uh, between one and two. No matter how, You can have infinitely many fractions, when you add them all up, you still get one. 
Um, secondly, the analogy gives us a definite beginning and end, one and two respectively. So with these two points in mind, the objection actually presupposes what it says how to disprove. Um, so I, I think the example is therefore disanalogous to the argument in support of premise four. Um, we're not just talking about um, things that have uh, a beginning and end, um, even if they have infinitely many fractions. We're talking about, uh, you know, and something endless. Um, right. So, uh, that makes sense. Yeah, that absolutely does. That's good stuff. Uh, most common okay. objection to these types of uh, of arguments, uh, and in this case, would probably be uh, what causally sustains the the unmoved mover. How, how would you answer that? Right. It's a lot like uh, the who made God objection. Um, well, uh, yeah. Um, so premise two of the argument doesn't state that everything has its motion sustained by another. Um, what it says is that everything in the motion has its motion sustained by another. So the unmoved mover is not in motion. So premise two is inapplicable, is inapplicable to its existence. If the unmoved mover were moved by another, then it would not be first in the order of sustaining causes, which is contradictory. What about those who say that in order for X to move Y, X has to be in motion? Okay. Uh, well, this, this I think, is an especially um, important question. Um, it's crucial to understand that there is more than one way to move something. Um, the unmoved mover isn't in motion by definition of its immutability or inability to change. Um, this is because it doesn't exhibit any potentiality, but is rather pure actuality, just as the argument from De Ente states. So how does the unmoved mover move anything? Well, here's an analogy. Um, imagine someone gazing upon a beautiful painting. The person is said to be moved by it, even though the painting doesn't have to be in motion itself. Rather, the painting moves the person as an object of desire. So by analogy, the unmoved mover is the supreme object of desire and moves things because of its inherent goodness. Um, if you prefer, this might be likened to the character of God, which is immutable. Um, all things find their purpose in the unmoved mover, which is why they're said to be drawn to it. Um, so in any case, I, I think this conclusion um, is very much in line with biblical teaching. Um, in the book of Acts, um, like what we've been talking about before, um, Paul cites the Greek poet Epimenides um, and states that in God we live and move and have our being. Mm, I like that. This is... Uh... This is good stuff, very, very good stuff. And, and what we're going to do is we're going to take a break real quick. Um, we're going to open up the phone lines for, for people who are uh, – this is, I know, some heavy stuff, so there's going to be, I'm sure, some people that have uh, have some questions. Um, phone lines are 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. Three nine zero seven. We're going to take a break, and uh, when we come back, we're going to we're going to keep looking. We're going to keep looking at the other. Well, what do we got? Four four ways left. Yes, and, sir. And uh, we'll look. Uh, all right, we'll look uh, a little more in depth at that. So stay with us, and we will be.
Hi, this is Ted Wright, Executive Director of CrossExamine.org, and I want to invite you to come out this summer, August the 8th to the 10th, to Charlotte, North Carolina, to our Cross-Examined Instructors Academy. This year is going to be fantastic. We're going to have Jay Warner Wallace, Greg Kokel, our own Dr. Frank Turek, and many others. If you want to learn more about this, you can go to www.crossexamine.org and click on CIA to learn more about it and also to apply. Over three chapters, the book of Genesis vividly describes a worldwide flood that began with all the fountains of the great deep bursting forth and the floodgates of heaven being opened. The reality of Noah's flood is the crux of the conflict between evolutionary and biblical worldviews. If this global deluge really happened, then the millions of years of earth history and evolutionary progression supposedly seen in the fossil record are swept away. The flood accounts for the major geological features and the vast majority of the fossil record. Indeed, the fossils themselves are a mute testimony to the truth of the flood. We find billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. Just what you would expect from the biblical account. If Christians were to believe and effectively defend the biblical account of the flood, then the basis for the evolutionary worldview would largely collapse. Many people would be saved from such a great pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. To find out more from Creation Ministries International, visit our website, creation.com. This is John MacArthur with another edition of Portraits of Grace. Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purifying a heart is the work of the Holy Spirit, but there are some things you must do in response to His prompting. First, realize you can't purify your own heart. Next, put your faith in Jesus Christ, whose sacrifice on the cross is the basis for your cleansing. Finally, study the Bible and pray. As you do so, the Spirit will continue to purify your life. There's no greater joy than knowing you're pure before God and that your life honors Him. May that joy be yours today, and may God use you powerfully for His glory. This is John MacArthur, looking forward to bringing you more Portraits of Grace. Um, 
I'm going to have Doug kind of summarize that again before we jump into the second way, but uh, we have the phone lines open uh, for anyone, whether you're a Christian, whether you're an atheist, uh, it doesn't matter. Um, if you agree, if you disagree, we want to hear from you. Uh, the number is 760-542-3907, and uh, Doug, welcome back to, from the break, and uh, do us a favor, man, kind of summarize uh, the first way uh, before we sure. jump into the, the second way. Give us some bullet points on that. Yeah, absolutely. Long. Absolutely. Um yeah, the argument for motion um or the argument from change um whichever you prefer um states uh number 1 evident to the senses is motion. Number 2, everything in motion has its motion sustained by another. 3, either an unmoved mover exists or else there is an infinite regress of sustaining movers. 4, there cannot be an infinite regress of sustaining movers from which it follows. Five, therefore, an unmoved mover exists. And uh, then we're able to um, show that uh, the unmoved mover is uh, pure actuality based on the fact that um, it is not composed of any potentiality. It's uh, it's pure pure actuality, and so the divine attributes likewise follow from uh, from the argument that I, I uh, defended in uh, Thomas Aquinas' De Ente. Awesome. What are, uh, is there any any works particularly if people are wanting to know more about the first way that they can go to or papers or anything like that, any resources that uh, maybe those who are looking more on the first way can, mm-hmm. can dive into? Well, you know, besides Thomas Aquinas himself, um, if you find that, uh, reading Thomas is a little intimidating. Um, there are two books that I would highly recommend uh, to anyone who is wanting to get into Thomas Aquinas, uh, whether it's um, his first way or um, just his uh, philosophical system as a whole. And uh, the first, and you'll like this, um, being a student of Geisler, um, the first is a book by Norman Geisler called uh, Thomas Aquinas, an Evangelical Appraisal. Um, and so um, uh, Geisler is a, uh, a Protestant philosopher and theologian, and uh, he defends uh, the philosophical arguments of, uh, of Thomas Aquinas, including the first way. Um, the other book that I would recommend um, is, uh, is a book simply called Aquinas, and it's by a, uh, another contemporary philosopher named Edward Fazer. And uh, yeah. this will really... This book will really help you to understand uh, the metaphysics of Thomas Aquinas. It'll really help you to, to better understand some of the other arguments against an infinite regress of causes, um, of sustaining causes, I should say. Um, and, and it goes much deeper into why um, why these arguments support the existence of God and not just not and why we should not just stop at an unmoved mover or a uh, first efficient cause. Why why these entities that we're talking about really do describe the same monotheistic God. Awesome. Yeah, I would uh what we can do is we'll throw a couple links up on our on our Facebook page uh to those books for people wanting more uh 
more information on that. So okay. let's uh let's jump into the second way here. Okay. Well, uh, the second way, um, also known as uh, the argument from efficient causality, uh, is similar to the first insofar as Thomas talks about a regressive causes. Um, but this would be a good time to distinguish between the four Aristotelian causes. Um, believe it or not, there are four different types of causes, according to Aristotle, not just one. Um, there are efficient causes, material causes, formal causes, and final causes. So an illustration might be an artist who is working on a painting. Uh, the artist is the efficient cause. Um, he's the agent who produces the painting. So it's the production that makes him the efficient cause. Um, the material cause is the paint as well as the canvas. Um, this is what the painting is made out of. It's the, it's the material. Um, so that's kind of self-explanatory. Um, right. The formal cause is the idea of the painting in the artist's mind. So the formal cause is sort of like the blueprint for what will be produced. Um, it's, just, it's, it's in the mind of the artist. Um, and the final cause is the reason or purpose for the painting, which in this case could be for the sake of making something beautiful or making money or both, um, since the two aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. Um, but the second way it differs from the first by focusing solely on efficient causality. We're no longer talking about the reason for a thing's motion or change, but rather for its very existence. Um, the argument goes like this, and it's, it's going to sound relatively similar to the first way. Um, number one, uh, there is an order of efficient causes in the world. Two, Nothing can be the cause of its own being. Three, either a first efficient cause exists, or else there is an infinite regress of efficient causes. And that follows from one and two. Four, there cannot be an infinite regress of efficient causes, from which it follows. Um, from five, therefore, a first efficient cause exists, and that follows from three and four. Um, this argument, um, as before, can be best interpreted by revisiting Dante. Um, when Thomas talks about there being an order of efficient causes in the world in premise one, he's referring to entities whose essence are distinct from their being. So, for example, we observe that the human body, for example, is dependent on its systems and its systems on its organs and so forth. Um, so the human body is a highly complex essence, which is distinct from its being, and so it's dependent on other entities to causally sustain its existence. Um, now, with respect to premise two, that nothing can be the cause of its own being, this actually should be fairly obvious. Um, premise two isn't even claiming that something cannot come from nothing, which, by the way, I also think is a pretty uncontroversial claim. Um, but rather, it's it's a denial of the possibility of a thing being self-caused. So, in support of this, um, in order for a thing to be the cause of its own being, it would first have to exist in order to cause itself. This means that it simultaneously exists and does not exist, which is contradictory. Um, so, premise two appears entirely intact. Um, right. Three and four. Three and four can 
both be defended in a similar manner that we defended the argument from motion. Um, however, it can also be defended in an additional way. Um, like I said, uh, Thomas um, in the Summa Contra Gentiles um, offers three distinct arguments against an infinite regress of sustaining causes, and we can go ahead and introduce another one of those ways. Um, if everything that exists has an essence distinct from its being, then the regress of efficient causes as a whole will go uncaused. And uh, that means that nothing exists, which is absurd. Something exists. So even if there could be an infinite regress of efficient causes, the regress as a whole relies upon an efficient cause to actualize its being. So therefore, we're once again brought back to the same conclusion that pure actually exists, which is the first efficient cause. Can you maybe break that down again? Maybe say, say that one more time. There's a lot of big words in there, and there might be some people that are not um, familiar with the terminology. Say that last part again. Uh, uh, where would you like me to start? Uh, okay, I can. Well, I can start from here. Um, so we're talking about even if there is a possibility of an infinite regress of efficient causes. Right. Um, the right. regress. Right. So the regress as a whole relies upon an efficient cause to actualize its being. Um, so, therefore, we're once again brought back to the same conclusion that pure actuality exists, and that's the first efficient cause. Right, and that's what we would, we would of course, describe God as, as as being pure actuality. Right, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so uh, th those who say that uh, this... Uh, latter argument commits a composition fallacy. Um, maybe kind of explain what that is, and, um, and uh, maybe you could answer that. How do you how do you reply to that? Sure. Um, yeah, the composition fallacy is um, it's a fallacy when you try to apply the whole a certain attribute just because all of its parts have that attribute, which isn't necessarily the case. So, for example, if every part of a mountain is small, that doesn't mean that the mountain as a whole is small. Um, right. And so it, it's it's true that there are instances in which the whole is unlike its parts. However, there are plenty of instances in which the whole is like its parts. Um, sticking with the a mountain analogy, um, if every part of a mountain is made of rock, then the mountain as a whole must be made of rock. So what we have to ask ourselves is which of these two examples does the argument from efficient causes most resemble? Um, the first example about, uh, you know, mountain not being small or the example that I just gave, which is uh, the mountain as a whole must be made of rock. Well, again, sticking with that example, um, even if we explain every part of a mountain, the mountain as a whole still has an external cause of its being, uh, namely the set of geological processes. Um, we, don't, we don't simply explain um, a mountain by looking at the parts that it's made of. Um, that, that would neglect um, what we already know through observation, that there are various uh, geological processes that, that would cause a mountain. So I, I think it's safe to say that we still need to have an explanation of the whole even if we already have an explanation of each member of the set or regress. Okay, that's that's good. Uh, before we go on to the third way, maybe I guess just summarize 
again, the second way um, mm-hmm. in bullet points <laughs> or us. How would, sure. you, how would you summarize the second point? Sure, absolutely. And, and I think, just for the record, I, I think this argument is a little bit more difficult to understand in the first way. Um, so I, I wouldn't be surprised if um, if there are some additional questions about it. Um, but basically, the uh, the second way, the argument from efficient causality states, uh, number one, uh, there is an order of efficient causes in the world. Two, nothing can be the cause of its own being. Three, either a first efficient cause exists or else there is an infinite regress of efficient causes that falls from one and two. Four, there cannot be an infinite regress of efficient causes. And so we're brought to the conclusion, therefore, a first efficient cause exists, and that follows from three and four. Now, these are just some, some powerful, powerful arguments, and I think uh, I think most most Christians would be just amazed if they actually heard how strong of a case uh, for the existence of God can, can be made through real rational, uh, logical arguments. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. And I... Uh, it's it, it's it's that's just it. I mean, it's 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 uh, it really is amazing. I think when when most people hear about arguments for God's existence, you know, they're used to the typical, you know, well, if there's no God, then where did the universe come from? And that's not really like the type of argument that Thomas Aquinas offers. Um, it's a little bit more sophisticated than that. Um, but with that said, um, even if it's more sophisticated, I think that the philosophical layperson is perfectly capable of of understanding and making use of these arguments in their uh, discussions with uh, some of their atheist friends. I'm, I'm curious. Um, have you? Uh, I'm sure you have uh, have talked to uh, skeptics or atheists before. Um, do you mm-hmm. use these arguments, and how do they? How, how do the uh, skeptics normally react? Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've used um, really, I've used all five ways, um, six if you include the argument um, from uh, De Ente. Um Usually, they end up either asking, well, some of them will admit, okay, yeah, first cause exists, but why does it have to be God? Um, others will object that um, there really can be an infinite regress of of causes, whether they're efficient causes or sustaining causes of motion. And, and they like to give the example of uh, the number line, you know, between one and two. Um, but, uh, you know, sometimes sometimes if someone's on the fence about the existence of God, I find that you're going to have a lot more success persuading them. Um, what we need to understand is that there's a, there's a huge difference between proof and persuasion. Um, I right. could make um, all kinds of arguments that I think are rationally compelling, um, but that's not necessarily going to persuade anybody. Um, but if someone's right. on the fence, it's, um, you're a lot more likely to uh, persuade them that God exists. Um, but at the same time, there's no argument that will allow a person to know God personally. Um, so there's a difference between knowing that God exists and, and knowing God on a personal level. So we have to keep that in mind when it comes to these arguments. Um, but with, with some of the more um, hardcore atheists, um, a lot of times um, we'll be just uh, you know arguing in circles about these matters. Um, 
and uh, you, I often find that I don't get very far with them. Um, some some of them I've had great discussions with. Um, I've even gotten one atheist to to admit that a necessary entity exists, um, which will be, of course, what we talk about in the third way. Um, but uh, he simply just denies that that necessary entity is God. Um, so, uh, well, there's always hope. It's a step forward, um, right. but you never know. Yeah, you know, I did a, a Bible study through the book of Mark at our church uh, Wednesday nights. Mm-hmm. took a whole year going through that book. And uh, one of the things that really stuck out to me uh, doing that study is you would find instances of Jesus, uh, you know, healing people right in front of mm-hmm. the skeptics. Uh, he would raise someone mm-hmm. from the dead. He would heal someone's hand. And instead of, like, you know, just falling on the on the ground, you know, just amazed <laughs> at what they just saw, they would yeah. get angry. You know, why did you do that on this day, you know, instead of... Right, you know, they- uh, yeah, just being, you know, you would wow, that's amazing. Amazed. Yeah, yeah. So I guess I mean, it goes to show you. I mean, uh, I, I think it was William Lane Craig. I'm trying to remember the debate he was in. Uh, maybe you can remember it. But they were doing this discussion of why I am a Christian, and the other guy was defending why I'm an atheist. And uh, you know, Craig finally asked him, "What would what would convince you?" You know, what if there was video cameras of the resurrection? And the guy, no, you know, I, I would think it was rigged and, um, you know, it was a set <laughs> on Hollywood. And, you know, it gets to the point to where, you know, even if you saw it happen, you know, you wouldn't trust your own senses. Yeah. If it was videotaped, you would think it was rigged. Exactly. So it, it really does. It, I think you're, you're right. right on the money. Or, or, or another example might be, and uh, this is one that I especially like as well. I, I love the example that you gave, but another one is that, um, you know, um, why can't I have a religious experience the way other people do? Why can't God just appear to me in a vision, tell me that he exists, and that's that? Well, I, I think for one thing, um, if you're a committed atheist, you're probably thinking that you're tripping on something if uh, God appears to you. You know, you're gonna find some way to to deny that the experience was authentic. Um, now, that's only in the case of of, of a really uh, hardline atheist. Um, and uh, you know, I don't want to overgeneralize about atheists. Not all atheists are uh, are the same by any means. Um, some, I think, are are more receptive to the theistic arguments than others. Um, I especially like um, Austin Basie. Um, I don't know if you've seen his debate with uh, William Lane Craig. Um, yeah, I, he's actually had two. Yeah, both of them were just excellent, excellent debates, and uh, I love the way that um, both men uh, behaved and uh, presented their arguments. Um, it's uh, those are definitely two debates that I would recommend that our listeners uh, check out if they have a chance. Yeah, you know, one of the things I was going to bring up, um, I, I'm not sure. Have you read uh, Edward Fazer's book? Um, the one on atheism, superstition. The last superstition. Uh, yes, yes, that one. Uh, have, okay. you, have you got you know, you know, I, I actually haven't read that one. Um, I've been meaning to. Um, you know, everybody keeps raving about it, and uh, and yeah. I believe it. I, I follow along with his blog every every once in a while, but uh, uh, maybe you could fill me in a little bit about it. Yeah, just just a, I mean, just a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant guy, and. Uh, the book, mm-hmm. man, I just I couldn't recommend that book highly enough. He's just 
guy is just amazing. I mean, the guy is just brilliant. But one of the things that he pointed out, and I was I was going to ask you for your take on this, um, is mm-hmm. when he's 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 responding to uh, the popular atheists, and he brings up that um, mm-hmm. Dawkins in his book uh, The God Delusion. I think he spends mm-hmm. like a page and a half on on Aquinas's works and the five ways, and just dismisses them. And it, it just seems, at least on the popular yeah. level, that uh, the popular atheists, they just seem to be clueless about uh, Thomas yeah. Aquinas. And they just, I mean, they don't they don't even consider, I mean, how, it's just so absurd, in my opinion. I mean, I'm thinking of some some great atheist philosopher like Anthony Flew, you know. How ridiculous sure. would that be sure. of me to write a page and a half of, of all of his work and just write him off as though... He's just a fool, you know. I just yeah, just, uh, just a loony. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think um, it's absolutely true that, and and I can never reiterate this enough. It's entirely possible to be brilliant in one field. Um, since we're talking about Richard Dawkins, in his case, you know, he, he's a smart guy, he's an intelligent guy. I don't want to take anything away from him, but his right. field is biology. It's not philosophy, and so with all due respect to him, um, I, I just don't think that he understands a lot of the philosophical arguments that uh, Tom right. Aquinas and, and others present, um, and, and we'll actually see that in our uh, uh, discussion of the fourth way, I think. And, and you know what, you know what, Doug, I think he knows that because, uh, I, I mean, I, I think uh, someone like Edward Faser would just brutalize him in a debate, but I'm just thinking even with William oh, yeah. and Craig. I mean, he just mm-hmm. absolutely, you know, he'll go chase down. I'm thinking of that, uh, not to take anything away from her, but Wendy Williams, um, mm-hmm. who actually who actually uh, did a really good job against him. But, I mean, he goes flying around the world to basically do a, you know, a sneak surprise interview on her, why she's at her job, you know, to try and trip her up on arguments for God's existence, that you have – you know, you have guys like Ed Fazer, who I know for a fact on Catholic Answers, yeah. they were trying to get Richard Dawkins to call in, or William Lane Craig, mm-hmm. who was numerously, um, you know, challenged Dawkins. And, uh, the, you know, just it's just too bad. I just wish that, uh, there, there are excuses after excuses. The first, I think the first excuse that Dawkins came up with um, to refuse to debate William Lane Craig was that um, – he was unwilling to debate creationists, um, and he didn't quite understand that Craig accepts natural selection and old earth. Um, he's not right. a he's not a six day uh, creationist. So I guess when Dawkins figured that out, he changed his reason for not wanting to debate him. And the reason he gave is that um, uh, Craig approves of the uh, the so called um, uh, moral atrocities of the Old Testament. Um, which uh, you know, Craig goes at, at great lengths to um, to give us the proper context, um, but I guess that's not really worth anything um, if uh, you're just simply unwilling to debate someone like William Lane Craig. Well, and the funny thing is, is, is he got caught because another time I don't know if you remember that debate that happened in Mexico. It was like three on three. It was William Lane Craig, Doug Grothuis. Yeah, I can't. I can't remember the other Christians' name. I feel bad, but against Dawkins and then a couple other atheists. And Dawkins, when he was yeah. asked, you know, why don't you debate William Lane Craig? Oh, well, I already have. 
actually from from four and five alone, it follows that a necessary entity exists, and I, I can explain that in some uh, further detail. Um, sure. We can actually show that this is true through what's called a reductio ad absurdum, or uh, in English, a uh, reduction to the absurd. Um, we can demonstrate that a necessary entity exists from the impossibility of the contrary, given the truth of 4 and 5. So what were 4 and 5 again? Well, 4 says that necessarily there was never a past time in which nothing existed, and 5 stated that possibly there was a past time in which nothing contingent existed. Um, so let's assume, for the sake of argument, that a necessary entity does not exist, now, based on this assumption, it follows that there was possibly a past time in which nothing existed. Because remember, premise five of the argument stated that there was possibly a past time in which nothing contingent existed. So this leaves us with the possibility of nothing at all existing at that past time. So remember, there's no necessary entity and there are no contingent entities existing at that past time. But we know from four, that in the actual world, it's necessarily the case that there was never a past time at which nothing existed. Um, so this means the assumption that there is no necessary entity is false, and therefore a necessary entity exists. Yeah, one of the objections that always comes up is about uh, quantum mechanics and uh, mm -hmm. particles popping into existence. Um, from nothing. This this seems to come up all the time. How do you, how do you respond to that? Yeah, yeah. It, this is uh, easily um, one of the most common objections I hear um, to this uh, to this argument. Um, it's important to remember that in, in quantum mechanics, it's not actually the case that these fluctuations come from nothing. Uh, rather, they arise spontaneously out of the existing energy within the quantum vacuum. Since energy is something as opposed to nothing. It follows that these spontaneous fluctuations are not a violation of premise two. So keep in mind what Christopher Ray points out, that it's a mistake to think of any physical vacuum as completely empty void. It's it's filled with fluctuating energy and that's where these fluctuations come from, whether they're spontaneous or not. It seems to be like a lot of the confusion comes to the word uh over nothing. And I don't know if you saw the debate with Lawrence Krauss and William Lane Craig. And Krauss <laughs> yeah, explained there's like four different kinds of nothing. Yeah, so um, philosophically speaking, as far as what is, the, what is the – explain maybe the difference between what the philosopher means by nothing and what the scientist means by nothing and uh, why that's so important to kind of make that distinction yeah. when you're doing the argument. Well, you know, Krauss really, he really redefines nothing as a type of something. Um, it, it, it's so it's so odd. Um, but, yeah, he, he refers to these quantum vacuums and, and the energy that, that's contained within these vacuums as nothing. Um, when really philosophically, the word nothing means the absence of something or the absence of anything. Um, so I, I, I really honestly, I think I think Krauss um, just uh, kind of found himself in a corner um, and, and wanted to reject um, the Kalam cosmological argument that Craig was defending. 
um, because, uh, you know, if the universe has a beginning and uh, uh, something cannot come from nothing, it follows that there's a first cause, and that's a conclusion that uh, that Krauss didn't want to didn't want to accept. I, I don't I don't think that um, you know I don't think that Krauss is being disingenuous, um, but I do think he found himself uh, backed up into a corner and uh, simply tried to come up with a reason uh, to reject uh, the idea that something cannot come from nothing. Yeah, I think uh, I think you're absolutely right. And you know, when we're saying nothing again, it's not you know talking about space, time, and matter. You know, uh, in an energy-rich field, you know, fluctuating. It's it's not nothing. Space and space is not nothing. No, that's so, something. That's absolutely something. Yeah, that seems yeah, to be one I, of the I, I, I think I think he simply I think Krauss is simply redefining nothing. Um, but uh, and it's just important for uh, for Theus and Craig has done the same thing. He's he's pointed out consistently that uh, uh, he's that Krauss is engaging in some uh, um, revisionism uh, when it comes to the term of of nothing. Right. What about premise five? Uh, I know there's some philosophers that object that uh, even though nothing contingent must exist, uh, it's necessarily the case that some contingent thing or other uh, exists. Is there any merit to this objection? Well, I don't think so. Um, I have heard this objection um, from a few philosophers, um, but as Alexander Proust points out, um, this would be a lot like saying that the non-existence of all non-unicorns implies the existence of a unicorn, uh, which is nonsensical. Um, if you go back to the mountain analogy, um, if every part of a mountain possibly fails to exist, the mountain as a whole possibly fails to exist. We we know this. It's really not even a matter of debate. Um, so likewise, if every contingent thing possibly fails to exist, then I, I think it's perfectly reasonable to infer that the sum total of contingent things can fail to exist. Very good. That's I think that's an excellent response. What about those who say the fundamental particles of the universe have necessary existence? Yeah, and, and, and this is another common objection I hear to uh, to the modal third way or, or any argument um, that leads us to the existence of a necessary entity, such as the uh, Leibnizian cosmological argument. Um, at this point, it might be best to reiterate once again what's already been said in De Ente. Um, fundamental particles, such as quarks or strings, have an essence distinct from their being. Uh, they have a limited size and mobility. Uh, they don't describe anything immutable. And since their essence is distinct from their being, it follows that they don't exist essentially, that is, by their very nature, so it's possible that they cannot exist um, just on purely philosophical grounds. But moreover, we now know from modern physics that there was a time at which these fundamental particles did not exist, uh, namely at the moment of the Big Bang. So I think it's, I think it's safe to say that the necessary entity in question is God. Very good. That's that's right. Let's uh, let's see. Let's let's go through it. Uh... Go through it one more time as we kind of okay. summarize that. So, um, run us through that argument again. Uh, give us give us sure. the premises again. Uh, 
Sure. Yeah. Um, number one, uh, something presently exists. Um, well, and that, I, I never even bothered gonna, to support that. Yeah. But, um, you know, you can go to, that. yeah, uh, Descartes, I think, therefore I am, I think is applicable to that. Um, so something presently exists. Um, two, something cannot come from nothing. Three, either everything that exists is contingent or else there exists at least one necessary entity. Um, four, necessarily, there is never a past time in which nothing existed. That follows from one and two. Uh, five, possibly, there is a past time in which nothing contingent existed. Um, and from four and five, we can conclude by reductio ad absurdum um, that, uh, therefore, a necessary entity exists. Yeah, and that is, that is uh, it's, it's a very powerful argument, isn't it? I, I I think so. Um, uh, of course, I'm I'm standing on the shoulders of giants here. I was uh, very much inspired by Robert Madel's version of that argument. I uh, I simply decided to uh, simplify it a little bit. He he goes through all kinds of. Uh, I think he has like over 40 premises in that argument um, to um, just show with modal logic that they, that the conclusion follows. Um, but I, I just didn't think that that was necessary, so I, I decided to simplify that. Let me, uh, kind of before we move on, I want to play a clip um, from mm -hmm. from Richard Dawkins. Uh, I played this a little while back when we did a show. And um, I just want to kind of talk about, for a few minutes, um, we've got, got 35 minutes left, we got time, um, the, of how exactly... Uh, you would respond um, to kind of what he's saying and and the whole evolution argument from evolution. Let us uh, actually we've got a, a caller first. Let me take this call and I will play that clip. So, caller, okay. are you there? Hi, this is Alfredo. Hey, Alfredo, Hello. how are you, man? Where are you from? Alfredo, Alfredo Watkins, right? That's me. Hey, how's it going? How's it going, Doug? Um, I've just been listening for the last half an hour. I got to it kind of late, so so sorry if my question's a little bit, uh, you know, if you, if it's already been answered. But oh, I wanted no to ask, yeah, yeah, I wanted to ask, um, how would you defend? Because um, I mean, a lot of these premise, these arguments, like the first way, they rely on mm -hmm. the premise, like whatever is moved is moved by something else, or caused to change by something else, or 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 other cosmological arguments they say like you know whatever begins to exist has a cause um how would we how how yeah. do you think we should defend that like what if someone says well i could just conceive something popping into being or something like that how what how do you think we should defend against those sorts of objections good yeah question, i i think for one for one th that is that's that is a good question um i think there's a distinction between what we can imagine and what is truly conceivable. Um, I can imagine, for example, um, a bear just popping into existence um, in my kitchen and going through my refrigerator. Um, but I'm not afraid of, uh, of that right now, um, just because intuitively um, I feel like the notion that something come, coming from nothing is, is absurd. Um, when it comes to um, defending like the argument from motion, you ask about... Um, um, the uh, I guess it would be what was it the second premise that everything in motion has motion sustained by another. Um, I prefer really just to give examples of that. 
Um, I gave the example of uh, an acorn um, being merely an acorn in actuality and, and uh, in potentiality something else like an oak tree. So, uh, in, in other words, um, in other words, um, I'm sorry, I kind of lost my place here. Um, but but if any of these things uh, like water, sunlight, or soil are removed, um, at that point the acorn will cease to become an oak tree. So I, I like to give examples and then challenge if, if, the, if, if the objector continues um, with his, his or her skepticism, I would challenge them to provide an example of something that uh, can be, um, you know, causally sustained or really not even causally sustained, but to continue changing without having any causal um yeah, I see. Um, so then maybe it would be like, well, they just don't have any evidence to say that something could, you know, be be changing without something changing it, right? Or, or, yeah. or like that. Yeah, so it, it's kind of like an inductive argument. Um, I, I find that those most resonate with people as opposed to, um, you know, the deductive arguments that Thomas provides like um, – Oh, how did you put it? Um, you know, if something were to actualize its own being, then it would have to be both in actuality and potentiality at the same time, which is contradictory. So, I mean, we could defend uh, the second premise of the argument for motion that way, um, but uh, that's a little more technical, um, and, and I just prefer to give, like, real-life illustrations. Okay, good. All right. Well, I just wanted to get my question in, so thanks, guys. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, man, I absolutely appreciate your call, man. You're welcome to call anytime. All right. Thanks uh, a lot. Well, I'll keep listening in. It'll be podcasted, too, so for those who maybe turned in late and uh, kind of was, was wondering about that, uh, the show will be podcasted, so uh, feel free. In fact, it'll be ready right after the show, so... Uh, let me go ahead and play that clip, uh, Doug. I just uh, okay. I know the objection about evolution comes up. This is uh, this is Richard Dawkins. We, he's talking about his his uh, new book, The Greatest uh, Show on Earth. Just get your response mm-hmm. on that. Okay. The greatest show on earth: the evidence for evolution. What is the greatest show on earth? Well, it's life. The whole diversity of life, the complexity of life, the beauty of life, the sheer number of species that are all doing their own thing in their own way. How has it come about? By evolution, evolution by natural selection. The book is about the evidence for evolution. How do we know it's a fact? My previous books have all been about evolution, but not the evidence for it. They've just assumed that evolution is true. Why is this book necessary? It's necessary because, for example, in the United States, some 40% of the population doesn't believe in evolution, believes that the world was created within the last 10,000 years. That's an educational disgrace, and those people, the majority of them, couldn't possibly believe that if only they were exposed to the evidence. The purpose of my book, The Greatest Show on Earth, is to expose people to the evidence. We go through the sort of evidence that Darwin knew about from domestication. Dogs and cabbages, pigs and cows 
have all been changed in huge ways in a very short time, maybe a couple of centuries, maybe a couple of millennia. If that much change can be achieved in a couple of centuries or millennia, just think what could be achieved in 10 million years or 100 million years. That's the sort of timescale we have to play with in real evolution. How do we know that? We know it from radioactive dating and other kinds of dating systems. Well, we'll go ahead and stop it there. I play that clip because uh, he uses really evolution as his argument to just say, therefore, um, you know, basically, if evolution is true, God is out of a job. We don't, we don't really need him. Right. Um, right. You know, I, I, you know, I'm. Uh, yeah, I think you know there's oh, differing ahead. views among. Yeah, I was gonna say I know there's differing views among Christians. Um, I, you know, I'm a young Earth uh, creationist, uh, but sure. um, and I think you and me would agree though that uh, whether or not evolution is is true or not, these arguments as we're going with uh, through uh, with Thomas Aquinas, evolution is just has just nothing to do. Whatsoever with with whether or not completely God is irrelevant. Good. Yeah, it's it's like I say, um, belief in God and evolution is no more contradictory than belief in God and gravity. Um, there is no, the two aren't mutually exclusive. Uh, I, I mean, um, Dawkins I think just presents a, a false dichotomy uh, when it comes down to it. Um, and also as far as um, what does he say that? Um, belief that uh, the universe is 10,000 years old is uh, an intellectual disgrace? Yes. Is that, is that the term that he uses? Well, I, I, I think that that's, um, that's simply false as well. It's, I, I, I actually am a, I'm an old Earth creationist. I, I believe the Earth is, is much older than that. But even I will, will concede that there are very intelligent people who hold to um, a more young Earth view. Um, so it's 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 no longer enough to simply disagree with people, but we now have to uh, insult their intelligence. Um, I just don't think that's the way to the way to go, and that's certainly not the way that um, anybody can uh, persuade another person. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny you say that. We were at a um, we were at a talk at Queens University, and uh, the mm -hmm. which is a very liberal college out here in Charlotte, and. Uh, Dawkins was the keynote speaker, and uh, mm -hmm. I actually have this clip. This uh, this young lady asked this question. She was uh, the leader or the organizer of the Campus Crusade for Christ. Let me play this clip. I wanted, wanted to get your reaction to it. Sure. This is probably going to be the most simplest one for you to answer, but what if you're wrong? Well, what if I'm wrong? I mean... Anybody could be wrong. We could all be wrong about the flying spaghetti monster and the pink unicorn and the flying teapot. Um, you happen to have been brought up, I would presume, in the Christian faith. You know what it's like not to believe in a particular faith because you're not a Muslim. You're not a Hindu. Why aren't you a Hindu? Because you happen to have been brought up in America, not in India. If you'd been brought up in, Indo in India, you'd be a Hindu. If you were brought up in... in um, Denmark in the time of the Vikings, you'd be believing in Wotan and Thor. If you were brought up in, in classical Greece, you'd be believing in, in Zeus. If you were brought up in Central Africa, you'd be believing in the great Juju up the mountain. In, there's no particular reason to pick on the Judeo-Christian God 
in which by the sheerest accident you happen to have been brought up and, and ask me the question, what if I'm wrong? What if you're wrong about the great juju at the bottom of the sea? <laughs> I mean, I would be curious to your response to that, Deb. Well, I think the applause would be funny um, at the end there if it weren't so sad. Um, I would make uh, two points to this. Um, number one, uh, Dawkins commits a, a textbook genetic fallacy. Um, and uh, a genetic fallacy is when you try to dismiss a person's belief based on the origin of that person's belief. It'd be like saying, well, you're not, you're not justified in believing in democracy because you were born in the United States. Or you're not justified in believing in calculus because you were born in a time after Newton and Leibniz. Um, so those two examples are obviously fallacious. So it, it doesn't matter. The, the manner in which you come to believe something has no merit on whether or not that belief is true or false. Um, and so I, I would, I would really just want to focus on the natural, the uh, the natural theology arguments, and right. one of the things that that he that he does, and he loves using the example of the flying spaghetti monster. Um, the arguments that I've given uh, so far point to an immutable being. Now, flying spaghetti monster, presumably. Um, if it really is a flying spaghetti monster, would be a mutable being. It's something physical and therefore capable of changing. Um, so it, it's, I don't think that the two have any relation to, uh, to one another. Um, and I, I think that he would have to actually deal with the arguments of natural theology instead of uh, throwing out these... Uh, these uh, pop culture references to a flying spaghetti monster or whatever that that really couldn't possibly be the entity um, that we're arguing for in natural theology. Yeah, because these arguments that that were that uh, we're going through, and we'll, we'll get back to in just a second, but um, they they really demonstrate that whatever the cause is, maybe you can talk to that for a minute. Um, the attributes of, of this cause. Frank Turk was uh, cross-examined. Um, does his uh, "I don't have enough faith to be an atheist" uh, lectures, and he's written the book and that. Yeah. Dr. Geiser, and they point out, uh, you know, that the the being has to be spaceless, timeless, uh, you know, immaterial. So basically, you know, what they're calling the the flying spaghetti monster would be identical to. You know the God of the Bible, as far as uh, you know, ontologically. Yeah, yeah. Speak to that. A, uh, what is the saying? A uh, a rose by any other name is just as sweet. Yeah. So um, <laughs> if they want to call it whatever they want, um, they're they're welcome to. But you're still describing the same entity that we are. Right, and that's that can be deduced again because you know if there's no space, no time. No matter that. That's why I know that's not really the way you were arguing here, but that's one of the ways um, the term actually is, brings yeah. the, the the Kalam cosmological argument. So mm -hmm. Absolutely. interesting stuff, man. Absolutely. Let's uh, let's look at the fourth way uh, real quick. Let me give out the phone line again for uh, others who may want to call in seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven seven six zero five four two. 3907. 
let's look, let's look at the the fourth way. Okay. Well, uh, the fourth way, uh, which is also known as the argument from gradation, or the argument from degrees of perfection, is uh, another one of those uh, very commonly misunderstood arguments of natural theology. And in fact, I, I might wager that it's the single most misunderstood argument of natural theology. Um, in fact, it's probably the argument out of the five we're discussing that even I understand the least. Um, but nevertheless, I want to do justice to all of Thomas's five ways, so I'll give the fourth way a crack. Um, basically, what Thomas begins by pointing out is that things possess qualities to a greater or lesser extent. Uh, the example he uses in the Summa Theologiae is that fire is the hottest thing, and so must be the cause of all other hot things. Um, now, even though we now know this isn't true, um, it's important that we not throw out the baby with the bathwater. Um, there's still significant insight, insight that Thomas provides. Um, I prefer his version of the argument in the Summa Contra Gentiles, and so um, his argument goes something like this. Uh, number one, some things are more or less true. Two, more or less comparisons can only be known by what is most true. Three, what is most true is most being. And therefore, from one through three, it follows that four, there exists an entity that is most being, or what we've been talking about, pure being, pure actuality. Um, now, premise one is fairly obvious. <clears throat> um, for example, it's true that Abraham Lincoln was a man. However, it's more true that Abraham Lincoln was a man who was president of the United States during the Civil War. Um, so there are more there are truths that are more or less accurate. Um, now, in support of premise two, um, I've always liked C.S. Lewis's analogy um, that you can't know that a line is crooked unless you know what a straight line looks like. So we can't know that something is more or less true unless we have some idea of what would be most true, say, uh, the union of all true propositions. And um, I think the most controversial premise of the argument is three, that what is most true is most being. However, um, just uh, based on some of my studies, I, I, I do think that this can be easily shown to be correct. As uh, St. Augustine points out, uh, the true is that which is. Yet that which is, is nothing other than being. Therefore, what is most true is necessarily most being, and this could only be pure actuality. Man, that is, that is absolutely awesome. Uh, Richard Dawkins' parody of the argument where he replaces the premises uh, with degrees of smelliness and arrives at the conclusion that there must be what he calls a preeminently peerless stinker. What do you say to that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, as amusing as Dawkins' parody is, um, it's entirely disanalogous to the fourth way. Um, as I mentioned before, um, I, I think Dawkins is an intelligent man and certainly knowledgeable in the field of biology, but um, with all due respect to him, I, I just don't think he understands most of these philosophical arguments. Um, the very concept of a greatest stinker is incoherent, since it's always and indefinitely possible to smell worse. 
Um, on the other hand, it's not possible to me more true than the union of all true propositions. So the parody, I think, therefore fails on the grounds of disanalogy. That's good. Very good. I like like the way you put that. Well, let's let's see. Give us uh, give us a brief summary, I guess, of that uh, of the fourth way. I know some some of the ways yeah. are a little more detailed and a little more time explaining uh, than the others. Yeah. So that's why we had to spend a little more time uh, on the other ones. But summarize number four for us again before we we get sure. into the fifth way. Sure. Okay, no problem. Um, yeah. Number one, some things are more or less true. Uh, two, more or less comparisons can only be can only be known by what is most true. Three, what is most true is most being. From what follows, four, therefore, there exists an entity that is most being. Awesome. And like I said, the podcast will be up. So I'm sure people are going to have to take a little time going through some of these again, but it's man, it's it's really good material. Let's look at number five, uh, the the fifth way. I know this one seems to be misunderstood a lot, and um, you know I'd like to maybe talk a little bit about it too. Uh, with some of the discussion, I'm thinking of uh, Jay Wallace. Or, I'm sorry, not Jay Wallace, but um, oh, the guy that's uh, with the Discovery Institute. Um, Oh, the sure. privileged planet. Uh, Jay Richards. Yeah. Jay Richards. Yeah, Jay okay. Richards. yeah the, name, the name is escaping me as well. Yeah, Jay Richards and I think Frank Beckwith had some interactions uh, on this. It seems as so some some Thomists are um, not, uh, I don't want to say not in favor of intelligent design, but um, I don't know if there's a, um, some philosophical issues there or what, but we'll go through the fifth way and then maybe we can talk a little bit about uh, how those uh, who are Thomas kind of deal with uh, intelligent design. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, it, it's interesting that you mentioned that um, it's commonly misunderstood because simultaneously, and I think you're right about that, um, due to some of these um, some of these sort of in-house debates between theists, but I, I also think it's probably um, the most intuitive argument for God's existence, at least among uh, philosophical laypersons, and uh, nevertheless, I think it's philosophically sound. Um, this is the type of argument that I think Paul refers to in Romans 1. Um, that's just my theory. I, I, can't, I have no way of proving that. Um, but in any case, um, let's begin by reading what Thomas himself says of the argument. And this election is taken from the Summa Contrage and Tiles. So what Thomas says here is, contrary and discordant things cannot always, or for the most part, be parts of one order except under someone's government, which enables all and each to tend to a definite end. But in the world we find that things of diverse natures come together under one order, and this not rarely or by chance, but always or for the most part. There must, therefore, be some being by whose providence the world is governed. This we call God. Okay, so that's what that's what Thomas has to say about that. And um, we can summarize the argument in a way that's fairly easy to memorize. Um, number one, uh, whatever exhibits regularity in its behavior is the result of providence. Uh, two, 
nature exhibits regularity in its behavior, from which it follows, three, therefore, nature's behavior is the result of providence. Now, um, what I love about this argument is that it's almost nearly impossible to reject either premise of the argument without a great deal of discomfort. Um, take premise one, for example. Um, let's say you win the lottery once. Um, you would probably explain that away as a matter of chance, but let's instead imagine that you win the lottery a thousand times in a row. Um, at some point, you would surely suspect that someone had rigged the lottery so that the same person would win each time. Um, it takes a lot more faith to believe that this is the result of chance than by design. And so, uh, as you mentioned before, in the words of uh, Geisler's book, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Um, now, uh, with respect to uh, premise two, uh, we can approach this in two ways. Uh, first, there's everyday experience. The sun rises and the sun sets. Um, when someone throws a baseball in the air, it will come back down. Uh, fire is hot. Uh, the examples abound, but uh, just for the sake of brevity, we know that nature behaves in a predictable manner. Um, so the second way to show that the laws of nature can be described using predictable mathematical formulas, um, take uh, Newton's uh, law of universal gravitation, for example, um, and uh, that states that the force between two masses is equal to the gravitational constant times the mass of object one times the mass of object two divided by the centers of the mass squared. Um, fortunately, we don't have to have this memorized in order to know that nature exhibits regularity in its behavior. Um, I wouldn't expect anybody to walk around um, citing um, verbatim uh, Newton's law of universal gravitation when they're talking about the, uh, the fifth way. Um, so uh, the words of Aristotle, I think, are as true today as they were over 2,000 years ago. He says, uh, when a certain result is achieved either invariably or normally, it is no incidental or merely lucky coincidence. In the processes of nature, each result is achieved, if not invariably, at least normally, provided nothing hindered. Now, this isn't some outdated and long-refused assertion. Um, take contemporary physicist Paul Davies, for example. Um, he makes the same point. Uh, he says uh, that all science is founded on the assumption that the physical world is ordered. The most right. powerful expression of this order is found in the laws of nature. We see them at work all around us in the rhythm of night and day, the pattern of planetary motions, and the regular ticking of a clock. So uh, given the truth of one and two, it, it follows that there is some providence which is designed for behavior of nature. When you say providence, uh, that could refer to necessity or design. What if someone objects that uh, nature's regularity is the result of necessity as opposed to uh, design things? Okay. Yeah, to that I'd simply point the objector back to what we've already said about the nature of a necessary entity. Um, nothing in nature remotely describes pure actuality. Um, so we would have to conclude that the, that the providence in question is supernatural as opposed to natural. I think this question was, uh, was the one that Dawkins said in his book, The God Delusion, was like the most uh, powerful question. And... Uh, 
Who about? Uh, what about those who ask who designed the designer? Yeah, very good. Either that one or who made jobs. Uh, it's one of those was supposed to be like the uh, the showstopper for theists. Oh yeah, uh, it's supposed to be the knockdown argument for atheism. Um, <laughs> no, and it's um, we, we can answer this question by making two observations. Um, first, in order for an explanation to be best. We don't have to have an explanation of the explanation. Um, if our archaeologists discovered pottery in some remote part of the world, uh, they would be justified in concluding that this pottery was designed, even if they had no idea who designed it, where they came from, or where they went. Um, but secondly, in terms of explanation, the principle of sufficient reason states that everything has an explanation of its existence, either in the necessity of its own nature or in an external cause. So if the objector insists that the designer has an explanation, then we've already provided four distinct arguments that something necessary exists. If the designer has an explanation, it would be explained by a necessity of its own nature. Uh, after all, the designer would have to transcend the universe, which is the sum total of all physical space, time, matter, and energy. And uh, this means the designer must be timeless, and it's impossible for something timeless um, to be caused, uh, since that would entail a time in which the designer didn't exist and then came into being, which is impossible for something timeless. Let me ask you this: with the, with the principle of sufficient reason, is that is mm -hmm. that kind of like the the main premise with uh, the Leibnizian cosmological argument, or no? It is, it is, yeah. Um, Leibniz, um, and, and there are some uh, stronger and weaker versions of the principle of sufficient reason. Um, some of the stronger ones um, state that, uh, you know, every fact or state of affairs has a sufficient explanation. Um, some of the more modest ones um, say uh, what I just said, that every everything not necessarily um, every state of affairs, but every thing has an explanation of its existence. Um, so, for example, um, we can have an existence of uh, a cat, an explanation for a mat, but uh, not necessarily an explanation for why the cat is on the mat. Um, there probably is one, but um, you can see why, why those two uh, principles of sufficient reason are distinct. Um, and then there are, there's even a principle of sufficient reason that uh, Alexander Proust and Richard Gale have uh, have used, and, and, and I encourage everybody to look up this, uh, this look up this argument. If uh, if you do a uh, Google search, whatever kind of search you use, um, you might type in uh, a new cosmological argument, and uh, you'll be brought to an argument uh, by Proust and Gale that makes use of a very weak principle of sufficient reason, saying that it's it's just that it's possible for a thing to have an explanation of its existence. And they're actually able to use that premise alone um, in addition to, you know, some other quite benign premises and, and come to the conclusion that God exists. Um, so it's there's really a whole lot of natural theology to be made out of uh, the principle of sufficient reason, and and I'd simply encourage uh, readers, even though we haven't listeners, uh, even though we haven't talked about it a lot today, um, I definitely encourage listeners to uh, look look more into that. 
Awesome. We uh, we have a couple minutes left, and uh, I actually posted a video uh, by by uh, William Lane Craig uh, today on this. Uh, how would a hypothetical uh, multiverse theory affect uh, this argument? Okay. Well, um, I, honestly, I don't think it would affect it at all. Um, if there is a multiverse, and uh, that's certainly a debatable concept to say the least, um, the mechanism that produces these distinct universes would still exhibit regularity. Um, it's not as if the mechanism produces these additional universes and suddenly destroys them. Um, it's now rather it exhibits regularity. Um, so if the notion of a multiverse is going to be an objection to the fifth way at all, then it only pushes the regress back one step. Instead of explaining the regularity of just our own universe, we now have to explain the regularity of the mechanism that produces the multiverse. That's good, man. This this is this has been a good show. This is going to be one, uh, you know, folks. Highly recommend, uh, you know, download this show, get your pen and paper, and uh, and go over it again slowly. Uh, some of the books um, that uh, he recommended was uh, Ed Fazer's book on Aquinas, um, as well mm-hmm. as Dr. Geisler's, uh, Norman Geisler's. I think it was uh, Thomas Aquinas' uh, Evangelical Appraisal. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Okay, something like that. So, well, uh, Doug, let's see, man. Take a minute. Um, take two minutes. Wrap it up. And uh, tell us about if you have your, your blog and, and anything else you want us to know where we can find you. Sure. Um, you know, I've actually taken a uh, sort of a leave of, abs- a leave of absence from my blog um, just because I've been wanting to pursue some other academic uh, pursuits. Uh, this fall, um, I'm going to be uh, pursuing another master's, this time in philosophy, and eventually I want to get a, a Ph.D. in philosophy as well. Um, so that's going to take quite some time to do. Um, but I will blog occasionally. Um, it's uh, just dougbenskoder.blogspot.com in case you're interested in uh, taking a look at it. Um, I will post occasionally on it still. Um, uh, you know, Once I have this recording downloaded, I'll certainly uh, post it up on there. Um, but other than that, some of, the thing, some of the things I'm up to, I'm currently, I, I, I just recently, <clears throat> excuse me, um, uh, finished writing a manuscript uh, for uh, my first book um, entitled Faith and Philosophy, an Introduction to Natural Theology. And uh, some of the arguments that we've discussed today, um, I do include in that book, um, in addition to uh, some other some other arguments, as well as um, reputations to some common atheistic arguments. Um, and I'm currently in talks with um, Abner Publishing um, to uh, release this as an e-book. Um, I, uh, I'm personally not in favor of uh, self-publishing. Um, There's nothing wrong with it or anything, but I, I, I just, for me, um, I consider myself too vain um, for self-publishing. Um, certainly no offense to anybody who does that perfectly legitimate, but um, I decided I wanted to go a little bit more of the traditional route, um, so um, this is sort of, uh, Abner Publishing is kind of a halfway point between these um, traditional publishing publishers and uh, 
non-traditional publishers, but uh, it's uh, it's not self-publishing. Well, to... So I was. What's that? Yeah, you'll have to you'll have to let us know, man. When that when that thing comes out, we're about got about thirty seconds left, but uh, okay. let us know when that comes out, and we'll get that thing posted on on the blog. We'll we'll definitely uh, I definitely want you back on. Uh, I'll, sure. I'll I'll call you after we hang up here, and and we're gonna work that out because uh, you've done a done a great job, man. You've uh, helped well, keep us. So. Appreciate you being thanks. on, it's, man. It's, and uh, yeah, I I, and, I really appreciate the invitation, and I uh, I hope I've been uh, of some help at least uh, to some of your listeners there. Absolutely, man. And uh, we'll we'll have you back on. Um, but uh, folks, join us again next week. We're gonna do another show, and um, I'm not sure who's scheduled. I don't have my planner here, but uh, we'll be back again. And uh, thanks everybody for uh, for joining us. God bless. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Word up. It's that biblical, biblical theology, theology study of the person of God. Attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics. And Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone, they give some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy.